Hello everyone, Anthony here. Just a quick word before we jump into the episode. During the recording of this, the Scorchies apparently managed to get into some of our audio equipment, resulting in some sound quality issues that are not typical of our show. However, we had so much fun recording this that we still wanted to put it out for you to enjoy, and we really hope that you do. Anyway, roll intro music. Watchers in the fourth dimension. Finding lovely planets with scrummy telling. Doctor, can't be dead. Just can't be. It'll be you singing a duet with Mr. Ray Gordon. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. I'm Don. I'm Naomi. And I'm Riley. And we're just so darn cute. (laughs) (laughs) This episode, we have a couple of very exciting things going on. Firstly, we're going to be discussing the season 10 adjacent Big Finish adventure, The Scorchies, from their Companion Chronicles range. And this also happens to be Don's very first Big Finish experience. Yay! (laughs) 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 additionally we are being joined by our friend naomi aka the whovian gal naomi please introduce yourself and let everyone know where they can find you i'm naomi i run the whovian gal account on instagram where i post a variety of memes analysis rankings reviews that make people upset i've been a doctor (laughs) who fan for more than half my life and have seen everything including Dimensions in Time and Canine and Company. (laughs) I can't wait to make everyone else on the show watch those. I'm so excited. They're going to hate me forever. (laughs) Canine and Company is not bad. No, it's not terrible. But Naomi, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. And if you're unfamiliar with the Whovian Gal Instagram account, it's fantastic. We're big fans. So go check her out and drop her a follow. Moving on to our main topic, the Scorchies, we will, as usual, start with some background information. This adventure is an homage to 1970s children's television, particularly British TV, and was written by James Goss, who got his start in professional Doctor Who fandom by working on the official BBC Doctor Who website in the early 2000s, where he commissioned a number of webcasts such as Death Comes to Time, Sharda, Real Time, and Scream of the Shalker. He's also notable for commissioning the animation work for the missing episodes of The Invasion, which Mm. were eventually included on the DVD release. Originally, they were going to be just put up on the BBC website. He also works as a freelance writer and has contributed scripts to over 80 stories released by Big Finish. Good God, he's prolific. (laughs) Sound and music for this one, provided by the duo of Richard Fox and Lauren Yason, who between them have contributed to an equally absurd amount of material from Big Finish. In writing songs for the adventure, they were given the brief of doing them in the style of the Muppets, which was a little different from the usual ask from the Big Finish team. And the play was directed by another equally prolific Big Finish team member in Ken Bentley. On the acting front, As usual with the Companion Chronicles, we have a cast of two. Katie Manning reprises the role of Joe Grant and also provides the voices for a number of the Scorchies, including Cool Cat, Amble the Ugly Doll, and the Magic Mice. Joining her, we also have Melvin Hayes, who provides the voices for Mr. Grizzfizzle and Professor Baffle. He also happens to be the ex-husband of Wendy Padbury. The story was recorded at the Moat Studios on the 19th of October 2012 and was released on CD and download on the 7th of March 2013. With that, let's go ahead and discuss it. And this one's completely bonkers, so 
I think we're going to have a lot to say here. That opening was amazing. Immediately, I'm like, this is a puppet. You don't even have to be able to see it. And it just took a wild turn from the get-go, and I was hooked. You can kind of tell that it's going to be weird if you look at the cover art. <laughs> that was my first, like, oh, what are we getting into here? Is this some sort of weird Meet the Feebles type thing? I wasn't sure, but it was really cool. I don't know that Big Finish was letting insane people send in their fever dreams as scripts. <laughs> But that was kind of like a cold open, and it was so batshit crazy unsettling. I kept questioning whether I had like somehow got the wrong file that was like the middle of the episode. And I went back to check it again. And then it was just, no, I'm like, okay, here we go. This is how we're starting. Oh, and by the way, the My Scorchies are evil. I was disappointed they didn't go for a full Muppet Show style opening. Generally, I'm not sure if they totally hit the evil Muppet Show vibe I think they were going for, but it definitely sets a tone for the story that is continued throughout. I also love, Riley, you pointed out the mice being very, very evil. They also somewhat reminded me of the mice in the movie Babe because they just <laughs> randomly come in at really odd moments and kind of do a setup into a, like the scene that's going to come next. And that was exactly what their role was here. So there's that. I love how enthusiastic they are. They clearly love their job. They love doing the flashback sound. They do the flashback sound even when they don't need to. And they're always just cheering and happy to be there. So 10 out of 10 job satisfaction for them. <laughs> Riley mentioned the cover and the mice on the cover really remind me of the clangers that we saw in the Sea Devils with the master watching them on Hold TV. Hold on. How long have we been doing this show? <laughs> it was Don who mentioned it, Anthony. Oh, don't mention the cover. Wow. <laughs> I am I sorry. see how it is. All right, fine. No, go ahead, go ahead, go on. I hadn't heard this one before, and I wasn't ready for the insanity. <laughs> Despite the craziness of the cover, as Don mentioned. I mean, when I saw the cover, I also was saying like, okay, all right, this seems to be like it's going to be really out there and wild, but probably not that wild. Not at all. Not nearly. But it was. It so was. And I want to make it very clear right now. I know it sounds like I'm tearing into this right now. But to be clear, I absolutely loved this. I loved it. You've been calling for weird for a while now. Yes. And we gave you weird. I know. Oh, my God. I worry I'm going to be the downer because this one's not my favorite, but I had listened to it before. It was the fourth Big Finish story I ever listened to. And I have an absolutely abysmal memory for Big Finish. I could have listened to something two weeks ago and I'll have forgot everything about it. But this one I listened to two years ago and I remembered it right up until the email asking which story we want to listen to. And I remembered the songs. I remembered everything about it. Speaking of the songs, the first one, Joe's making a thing. It really took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting it just out like, what is happening? Because the structure of this whole thing is odd. When you've gotten used to traditional classic Doctor Who like we have, I mean, it starts in media res and just goes from there. But it does a really good job of you don't really notice the fact that you don't change locations a lot. And it's essentially a lot of just Joe talking with one other person. And yet it kind of works. To that point on, I think the plot itself is relatively simple. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a bunch of very, very entertaining set pieces woven around a simple plot, but is still incredibly entertaining because it's just so off the wall. 
It was also surprisingly anti-television. <laughs> That's what we should do with this episode is talk about how podcasts are bad for you. <laughs> how much plot was there? This is my main issue with it, which I'll probably come back to later. But the songs went on for a long time. And not a ton actually happens in this one. It's really a vibes and tone over plot situation, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm not sure whether it's a simple plot or just the trappings of a plot without much story. I'm so curious how much of the context around it, there were so many little looks towards classic British TV. I mean, I picked up on references to Blue Peter, Delia Smith, who I can best describe as the British equivalent to Martha Stewart. Space 1999 gets mentioned. <laughs> mentioned. Yes. Mentioned. Let's call it that. I mean, there's a ton of classic British kids TV shows in this that I don't know how much of that kind of translates to an American listener. I grew up on PBS Kids. In terms of the pacing, I think absolutely. I was not thrown by the song. I think I watched children's television as a child, most recently out of anyone else in this group. <laughs> in terms of tone and pacing, it did feel familiar. It felt like shows I'd watched. It really made me think of Sesame Street, but I definitely didn't pick up on any references to any specific shows. I obviously got the Space 1999 because I just went out right and said it. Um, so obviously got that one. And the Muppets was very clear to me because she said Sesame Street, but I was like, this is totally Muppets, which is what they were going for. I enjoyed the simple plot, though, because sometimes you get these convoluted things. We've mentioned it before on some of the Big Finish where it's like this was confusing. So I actually prefer the straightforward. You know what? This is just a simple. They're trying to kill everybody. We'll just leave it at that. Perfect. The Space 1999 reference, that point, after the songs came on, and don't get me wrong, I love the songs. I mean, the songs were a lot of fun. They're just great to me, personally. They were really enjoyable. But when they got to the Space 1999 reference, at that point, I said, yeah, they're taking the piss with this entire serial, aren't they? <laughs> this is exactly what they're doing. Only till afterwards did I read and, and I had no idea that Kitty Manning did like 80% of all the voices. At that point, I was like, okay, so they were just saying like, let's do this crazy idea. Let's just, you know, for shits and giggles, let's just go ahead and go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it turned out pretty well. That particular line, you must change the channel, even if it's Space 1999. <laughs> I thought that was really funny because I watched some Space 1999 and I would definitely change the channel. <laughs> I do think it's very savvy of Big Finish to be constantly critiquing television throughout this story because they're an audio drama company and they're trying to attract Doctor Who television viewers to then become obsessed with Big Finish. So if they're creating a story and the message is TV is evil, TV is evil, don't watch TV, maybe <laughs> that's actually a good thing for them to do. Those evil bastards. They're doing their own product placement. So to go into a little bit of the meat of the story... Uh, because there is a little bit here. They also make a lot of homages to the show itself, to Doctor Who. So, mm -hmm. for example, Joe is making a thing and she's building that gun and she's using like a crystal from it and all that. It kind of reminds me when the Doctor is tinkering and building those weird contraptions that he does as the third Doctor that look like child's toys. And it just kind of reminded me of that because they called it a gun made out of a cardboard tube, sticky back plastic, and a pipe cleaner. And I can just visualize what that looks like in my head based on some of the episodes in the Third Doctor's era. 
And that in particular, Julie, was the reference to Blue Peter. So Blue Peter was like a kid's, I don't know how to describe it, like factual show. They would do like little mini documentaries, but also whatever the big kids TV program was at the time, say it was Thunderbirds, they'd be like, here's how you make one of Thunderbirds out of a washing up liquid bottle, a toilet roll and some pipe cleaner and some sticky tape. Can we discuss the most important reference to the show, which is the fact that Three and Joe went ballroom dancing with Sergeant Benton? <gasps> yes! Oh, someone else! <laughs> yes, I am Team Benton. Put that out there. There's another one! <laughs> there are many of us. You get involved in classic Who fandom. Oh, so good. So, so good. I obviously enjoyed that tremendously. Oh, you stole my heart. <laughs> I believe Yates has mentioned a grand total of zero times. <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> I am. I always am. I didn't miss him. I didn't even miss a mention of him. Yates has uh -huh. enough big finish. We can let the rest have a turn with this one. Yes, we can. Absolutely. Also, I found a fun little reference, probably not a reference at all, but they called them magic mice. And I was like, oh, magic mice. Okay, my mind went down a really bad rabbit hole on that one, so <laughs> highly recommend you don't do that. I'm not even going to ask. I'm not sure that's PG-13 enough for the show. <laughs> it absolutely is not. I would like to know which song people prefer. Joe is making a thing or We Killed Him Dead? Joe is making a thing. <laughs> Joe is Joe making a thing. thing. Definitely Joe's making a thing. I struggled to fall asleep last night because I got that stuck in my head. <laughs> Just playing on a loop. Oh my gosh, we are so sorry. I didn't have that problem because Anthony sent me the Sparks, My Baby's Taking Me Home, which just crawls in and takes up residence. It's, oh God, someone help me. <laughs> I did really like that very early on when Joe mentioned the doctor was making a thing, I believe the magic mice respond, did it have lights that flash and go bing? Which I didn't pick up on a first listen, but it's a cool little teaser for the song to come. I did realize we didn't get a mention of Yates, but we got a mention of Bessie. Yes. We got several mentions of Bessie. Several mentions of Bessie. That made me happy. I did have a question. So their plan was to kill everybody, but then they also made a comment that was very specifically, there won't be a single adult left in the British Isles. And I'm like, I thought the plan was to kill everybody, but now it's just all the adults are going to die. I, I got a little confused there. I think they were going to start with the adults and then maybe just wipe out the rest of the planet once they were done. That was a little loose. Yeah, because okay. they did it with a children's show. That yeah. doesn't make a ton of sense, considering they're saying their appeal is that they're so cute and child-friendly, so we're going to kill all the adults who might not even be watching when their kids turn on the Saturday <laughs> night show. Yeah, it's not a great plan on their behalf, but, you know, it's fine. If you poke this one with a stick, it all falls apart. But if you don't <laughs> poke this one with a stick... It's okay. And I think that's what we've said a little bit about these companion chronicles in the past. I think, in general, the plot is kind of a side note to just having some fun. And this story definitely does that really, really well. I agree to an extent, but the one issue I have is that the companion chronicles as a range often is meant to showcase the companion as the lead character, sacrificing plot to forward the companion's character, the companion's journey. But in this one, Joe really doesn't get a lot to do, nor does the plot really center around her. To me, at least, it felt like I could have replaced her with Rose, maybe, or Perry, who I know not all of you know, and the story would basically remain unchanged which I wouldn't be upset about, except for the fact that this is specifically a companion chronicle. 
And I listened to yeah. other stories from this season of the Companion Chronicles, and this is the only one that has that issue, where the Companion is not taking center stage. I think it was probably just a case of James Goss had this idea and they had to figure out a way to do it. No, oh, we'll shove it in a Companion Chronicle. They're less listened to than everything else anyway. I love the Companion Chronicles. I do too, but I definitely know people who don't. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to talk more about the Scorchies themselves. Do we all think that they are memorable on like an individual basis? So obviously you have the mice, you have the baby and so on. For the most part, yeah, I think so. Definitely the mice. We've talked about them already. <laughs> Amble the doll was interesting because she was the one who was the least wanting to be like the rest of the Scorchies and things like that. I just never caught the name of the main one who kept speaking. Riz Fissle. Yeah, I missed that name somewhere along the way, but I knew who he was whenever he was talking. I love the professor, though. But we all know <laughs> yeah. why we love the professor, because it turns out that it's actually the doctor behind the professor. But there's <laughs> that. So yes and no. It's really, if you boil it down, there's really only the mice and sizzle guy. And those are really the main two. Hey, what about cool cat? And his oh, ray gun. Okay. Okay. Yes. Mr. Ray Gunn. Is he related to James Gunn? (laughs) (laughs) I had trouble telling the Scorchies apart. I don't think this audio did a great job of actually describing what they looked like. They used the fact that Professor Baffle is a bat as a punchline near the end. But by Big Finish is usually very high standards of making their stories very visual just through words. I don't think this quite worked. I did struggle to imagine what they looked like, what they were doing, just how they moved and how they acted. And that meant I had a bit of trouble throughout the story really embracing the crazy out there concept of the puppet. I would agree with that because I didn't realize he was a bat until that final joke. Did I miss a description somewhere no, no, along in there? No, you didn't. That's what she's saying. For me, I kind of took a different approach. I didn't mind not knowing Because I could just be in my head and I'm like, this is like Muppets. These are all puppets. And so I just went with it. I was like, they probably just look weird. I kind of like had a combination of Muppets and Crank Anchor stuck in my head during the whole thing. (laughs) So I kind of just created my own visual without needing a lot of exposition. When they called him about at the end, I was like, okay, I guess I can like retroactively picture him as something else. But I think it just kind of depends on how close to reality do you want it to be described as. I just try to connect it to the cover art. That's what I did. I tried to connect each one that as it was somewhat described like cool cat. I'm like, okay, he's the cat over there. There's the mice. Okay, I got that. So I mean, not all of them were so clearly defined, but I was able to figure out a couple of them based off of the art. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think they really relied on the cover art to fill that gap. And candidly, I don't think that's good storytelling. All right. I disagree. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we said we needed some more tension on the show. Uh, Okay. More conflict. And he still doesn't look like a bat. Looks like a weird bird. In my head, he looked like Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, which was completely (laughs) not what he actually looked like. But I dislike the description being used as a punchline, especially for an audio that's so dependent on a listener creating their own image. And that's like, aha, you're wrong moment, which I didn't appreciate. Well, I just want to know who's everyone's favorite Scorchy. I really like the mice. Love the mice. Like Julie, I would say Professor Baffle, but given that he's the doctor for the majority of it, it feels like cheating to pick him. Fair enough. I'm going to go with Amble because I felt sorry that she got killed. 
<laughs> I'm not sure it's ever necessarily explicitly said, but there's mention that she's been taken over by an outside influence, which I would assume is implied that that's the Doctor. At least convinced, if not outright possessed. As I said, you poke it with a stick and it all crumbles. <laughs> I've got no. to say the mice, though. They're great. And the fact that they're voiced by Katie Manning makes them even better. I had a topic that I wanted to discuss, and it's probably one of the more serious things of this entire piece of it. So at the end, she gets back with the actual doctor, and they're discussing things, and she's like, well, what about the professor? And he's like, he had to die as well. And she's like, oh, that's really sad. I really loved him. And then the doctor's like, I guess I could see that. But really, she's saying that she loved the doctor because it was really the doctor as a part of that. So that kind of goes into that weird thing we've been talking about where did the doctor like Joe more than just as a companion and was in love with her? And this kind of threw it all into that kind of view. Or maybe I'm looking too much into it. Can I piggyback off this for just a second? Mm -hmm. That specific part, one thing that confused me so much, I swear she said Joe loved him. Oh, she was referring to herself in the third person. That is so bizarre way of phrasing that. It's just very strange. You guys have seen The Green Death, right? Yes, yes. we yes. literally recorded on that one two days ago. Yeah. In my mind, the third Doctor and Joe relationship is very father-daughter. The Green Death especially, but throughout season 10, it's pretty obvious. And I did watch The Green Death with my dad, and he claims it's the one that makes him the saddest for that reason. But I feel like there are some interpretations that it's romantic, but Joe throws around the word love very frequently, especially in Big Finish. And she almost never uses it to refer to romantic love. And I'm wondering if she's just referring to the fact that there is a really deep love there, just not necessarily like a in love in a romantic way. Interesting, because we watched The Green Death and we had commentary about how that professor was because uh, there's multiple <laughs> professors, uh, Cliff Jones was like a younger version of the doctor. There's a lot of parallels there. So we had this conversation about, was she in love with him partially because of how much alike he was with the doctor? So it's very interesting how there could be a lot of interpretations about their relationship and what it actually was. Sounds very Freudian to me, then, if you want to combine both ideas. <laughs> stop, stop. Oh goodness. <laughs> I hate relationships between the Doctor and human companions. I think it's really oh. gross. But for me, Three and Joe seems either like a really platonic best friendship or as a father-daughter relationship. I don't disagree with you and I don't ship them. It's Good. just a matter of no. you could kind of see that in an underlying sense in certain scenarios and in certain situations, but it's not something that obviously the show didn't try to push on anybody at that point in time. And it's not so blatantly obvious that it's like this undercurrent. It's It could be interpreted that way. And just to go back to the end of The Green Death, I think up until that point, it did come across as very paternal or platonic until Joe and Cliff are having their little party and the Doctor downs his champagne and quietly leaves. And that feels very much like a spurned lover. But that's the first time that kind of emphasis has been placed on that relationship. And I'm with Naomi. I don't like that. I don't like relationships between the Doctor and the Companion. I remember 96 seeing the Eighth Doctor. Um, I'm not going to spoil that, but what went down in that, I was like, no, no, absolutely not. And then Rose came along and that made me mad. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it either. It's a difficult thing to deal with because I always like the Doctor as a force of nature character where we see more of a reflection of 
how does he perceive us as human beings, and particularly these companions, these characters? But on the other hand, if you get it heavily involved and it becomes a relationship relationship, then you get into like dangerously creepy areas where it's like he's the Matthew McConaughey character from... Uh, <laughs> God, I can't remember the name of the movie. Basically, the line is, you know, I love high school girls. They keep getting younger and I stay the same age. Dazed and confused. Yeah, dazed and confused. Thank you. Yeah, it kind of comes across as that when you consider his age and what he's done and that he can travel through time. It hits some creepy levels a bit. Yeah. Can anyone remember how old the third Doctor's meant to be? I think 500, but in Classic Who, they really, really did not care. Yeah, they did not. I was just thinking that whole, like, Thing I remember as a teenager being told acceptable age, take half your age and add seven. So, you know, <laughs> the youngest he should be dating is 257 at this point. So definitely not Joe. Big Finish did come out with some third Doctor and River Song audios, which might be on the edge. Mm. They were bad. Well, River Song is a whole nother entity. Let's be honest. You'll get there and in I'm... like 10 years time. Well, I'm, I'm doing some River Song stuff with another podcast. But are we good with like the heavy stuff? I want to talk about a few more funny things before we get to the end. There's a lot of funny things to talk about. So as far as the heavy stuff, you don't even include the Scorchy's backstory. Really glad you oh. brought that up. And how they're now just going to eliminate. They're, they're not searching for a new planet. They're just going to hypnotize everyone and then burn the planet down. <laughs> That's not included in the heavy stuff. And this is not the first one. I love the backstory. The backstory is fascinating to me because when you really think about it and you strip away the silliness, it is incredibly twisted and dark and disturbing. And when you think about them coming from a faraway planet, traveling from the deep cosmos, coming to planets destroying them it's very lovecraftian cosmic horror i guess you call it jim henson's lovecraftian <laughs> cosmic horror babies or something we're back to that kinder horror that i was talking about yes. probably over a year ago <laughs> yes horror. but i love jim henson's great old ones babies yeah <laughs> pretty much Basically. i mean like Naomi said, if you poke too hard at a lot of the plot, it falls apart. But as far as atmosphere and the creepy idea based on their backstory, they have taken it upon themselves to wipe out all life until everyone is dead or the universe is sorry, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty dark i thought one of the things <laughs> yes. that really worked was how near the end they started to be characterized as children especially the main one whose name i'm forgetting so there is a certain immaturity in the idea that i got hurt so now i'm just gonna make everyone else get hurt because it makes me feel better like a kindergarten playground squabble it's just the fact that they have huge amounts of genocidal power and are using <laughs> it <laughs> And it's, that level of horror is a really real thing with taking mm -hmm. childish tropes and childish ideas and making them threatening. As I just like the fact that they were called toys stuffed with evil. <laughs> <laughs> can we discuss the voice acting a little bit in more detail? Not, I mean, obviously we know what Katie and Manning, but can we talk about the voice acting of the particular characters? I thought the Grizz Fizzle was really good because he had a wonderful way of sliding in menace into his voice. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I thought Melvin Hayes did a great job at making Fizzwizzle and Professor Baffle very, very different characters. I would have loved to have been in the recording booth and seeing him just switch between the two. <laughs> 
I will give it to this audio in that it felt a lot more like a full cast audio drama than a typical companion chronicle. And I think Mm -hmm. that's down to the voice acting. The fact that it really felt like they had tons of different actors in the room and a huge cast for this audio compared to most companion chronicles where it's very, very clearly one person, maybe two people telling the whole story. I definitely agree with that. I've probably listened, well, other than Anthony, I've probably listened to the most of the companion chronicles of the group. And I've listened to a few with Jamie, a few with Benton. Luckily, the one with Benton, he had another person, but the Jamie ones, oftentimes it's just him. I can definitely agree with what you're saying there. It was nice to get a lot more depth. And I think that idea of just having the animated creature, so to speak, was just like, okay, we're going to have fun with this. I think Katie Manning probably had a lot of fun just coming up with these bizarre characters. I, I would have fun with it anyway. Not to mention her impressions of the doctor and the brigadier. Oh, yeah, those were funny. Those were great. Oh, oh, the brigadier. Those were something special. Speaking of the doctor, the moment that Professor Baffle switches and stops pretending to be Professor Baffle, I thought Melvin Hayes captured the third doctor very, very well in terms of like the cadence of his voice and the intonations. Mm -hmm. That made me really, really happy. Especially because he's still trying to do the voice of Baffle just with the different cadence because it's still from the body of Professor Baffle. So it's this weird kind of convoluted construct that you have where someone who used to be Mr. Cleverman turned to Professor Baffle, who is now being taken over by the doctor. It's just mind boggling. I actually really think that it's amazing what they did with that. Is it bad that I found that the least convoluted part of the entire resolution? (laughs) You want to talk about convoluted? How about reverse, reverse the polarity? At that point, I was like, okay, they are... If, if they weren't taking the piss before, they are totally doing it now. The reverse wow. polarity, polarity reverser. Yes. Yes. Oh, that was brilliant. Does that count for two or three counts for reverse the polarity? I think it's, yeah, it's probably three. Are we even counting that? No. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> we should be. If you reverse the reversal, doesn't that negate one of the counts? But then one of the reversals <laughs> wasn't actually reversed, so then it becomes one reversal. <laughs> Oh, God, I need some ibuprofen. They were building the machine to reverse the reverse polarity, but instead it re- they reversed it back to make it even more reversed. I'm with Don. Bring in the Advil, please. This is starting to turn into a game of Uno. <laughs> <laughs> Draw four. Welcome to Watches in the Fourth Dimension, sponsored by Goodies Powder. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I had a thing I was going to say. It was about the polarity reversal where they brought back the one that they built that we all thought was rubbish with the corks hanging off of it and all that. Yes. I thought that was a nice little callback reference. That's really funny because I was listening to another Big Finish story at the weekend from the Legacy of Time box set. And there's another instance where one of those gadgets is made. How many stories does this happen in? It's probably only these two, and I listened to both of them within a few days of each other. <laughs> Think of the impact the time monster has had, and that yes. beautiful little device that spins and lights up when you put a cup of tea on it. And that's what all the guys hated in it, and I'm just like, guys, it re- just let it go. It's amazing. Don't be opposed <laughs> to fun. <laughs> so- I like the fact that there was a dun-dun-dun! <laughs> You know, I'm going to have to put in the dun-dun-dun now. that's why we do that. We haven't had that in a while, so that's good. I have a question. Uh, How did the doctor survive? I still don't quite um, know. 
did they say in the song and did I miss it? Because they say Professor Baffle missed, then they lured him into Studio One and electrocuted him. And then they keep making a big thing of how Professor Baffle missed and that shows his inherent goodness. But what? What happened? I, I still don't know. This is the part where I usually make something up to make it fit my headcanon. Can we edit that in when I figure what, how, what that is? Because I have no freaking idea. <laughs> my feeling was that in regards to the plot holes and stuff like that, I didn't really notice it too much because when I noticed how weird it was getting, I just was so excited. I just downed, downed a bottle of Robotussin and just enjoyed the ride. <laughs> but for those of us who can't listen to this under the influence of alcohol, my big question is, was it in the song? In the, well, it he's may, not dead? I uh, don't know. I didn't catch it, but equally I was listening while also working. Yeah. I kind of viewed it, if they had done this as, you know, an actual filmed episode, that would be our cliffhanger, and they would have the stupidest resolution possible that wouldn't matter. That. In the first few seconds. So, you know, but I don't know if it was in the song or not. Do we have lyrics anywhere? I've not been able to find them. That doesn't mean they're not out there. I'm kind of similar in the mindset of Riley. Not to the point of, you know, cough syrup, but (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed it immensely and I don't really care. Like, yeah, there's some plot holes. Doesn't bother me at all. That's not what this story was trying to accomplish. This story was trying to accomplish. Let's just have as much crazy fun as possible. Let's have, you know, a few fun songs and let's bring in some references to kids shows and everything and we'll call it a day. They got A plus on what they were trying to do. I actually did just find the lyrics, <laughs> which shows I didn't do a terribly good job at searching earlier. And it doesn't entirely explain it. He's not dead. The news was fake. And that's pretty much as far as it goes. Well, I think part of it was, is I think that they were removed from where they actually did that in the room. So they didn't actually physically watch him die. That's my head cannon. That makes sense. Is that they had set up this trap. They pulled the classic villain thing of setting up the trap and leaving. Yes. I was going to go with they just straight up lied through their teeth. That seems like something they would do. Also fair. I do like that song because it mentions Ice Lords, Demons, Ogrons, Axons, uh-huh. Autons, Autons, the Master. Were... Absolute fan service. And Which is it great. makes my fanboy heart that Don likes to quash <laughs> so very happy. I like the fact that they mentioned the Autons. I haven't thought about them in a long time, and I rather enjoyed them. Be a while before you think about them again. Or at least see them. She can think about anything she wants. <laughs> That's true. So we end this with kind of a cliffhanger, because one of them's still alive. My theory is that Big Finish really wanted to bring the Scorchies back. Big Finish has a whole canon of its own recurring villains, and I suspect that it wanted to add the Scorchies to that list. I do not believe they've returned yet. I think they have. <gasps> they have? Yeah, they brought them back in one of the Jago and Lightfoot stories called Encore of the Scorchies. I mean, that's a terrible time. Well, I know what I'm listening to next. <laughs> are the songs as catchy as these ones are? I have not listened to it, so I have no idea. Wait, they're the uh-huh. Victorian duo, right? Wait a minute. They're apparently in... Aside from this one, the Wax Princess, Encore of the Scorchies, Comeback of the Scorchies. Yes. And Broken, which I thought was a Nine Inch Nails album. I, <laughs> so I take I it back, really they succeeded in adding the Scorchies yes, to yes. their canon of recurring villains. But yes, Naomi, uh, Jago and Lightfoot are the Victorian duo from the Talons of Wang Chiang. Oh boy. 
So this yeah. means, guys, that we're going to cover more Scorchy episodes, right? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> we're, I'm going to make a spinoff podcast just about the Scorchies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What have we started? I hope it has a good theme tune. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. I do yeah, have so... one more problem with this one. Can I be the negative one for a moment? Yes, absolutely. Please give let me yes. have my fever dream, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is meant to be season 10 adjacent, not season 8 adjacent. My complaint is that to me, Joe basically plays the damsel in distress the entire time throughout the story. And it feels more like season 8, Joe. Her one attempt, Scorchies, which I actually thought was pretty cool with the ugly dolly and playing pretend fails and most of the time she's just reacting or complaining and one of the things i love about season 10 joe is how much more agency they give her and how much more she gets to do she gets to be more feminist she gets to have her own storylines and really drive the plot more and to me this felt like a step back and it felt more like joe was just there to be rescued and to complain and I don't like that because Joe is one of my favorite characters. And it's really sad to see her done wrong so much later after their not great first attempt with her back in season eight. That's a fair point. I think the problem here is that, and I'm not just saying this because I'm trying to advocate for more scorchiness, but it's only two episodes. I think that when you consider it, this seems like it's just the third act the climactic couple scenes of a much larger story. And because of that, the show oftentimes does you know, revert to captured, I'm stuck, and here's our big climactic ending to get rescued or saved or get out of the situation. I feel like there was potential here for Joe to do a lot of things, but it's only two episodes. I wasn't just joking when that cold open, it comes through and how things are just immediately like, okay, we have our character. Or they're immediately with the villains. Boom, we're moving forward. I was like, well, we're straight into the third act. Did I miss something? And I feel like that's the issue. I feel like if it was given a chance to be thoroughly written out as a full story, there would be an opportunity for her. I agree, I... but I wish we could have seen Joe solve the problem rather than three. Oh, okay, that's in. a good, that's a fair point. Yes. I would agree with that, especially because I'm still not exactly sure what the doctor's methodology was. Reversing the polarity of the neutron flow. I mean, besides that, <laughs> that's his one trick. But as far as, you know, getting into the mind of the professor, it just seemed like, like what is happening? Is he possessing him? I don't know. I think one of the things for me with this and why it it's not necessarily as successful as other companion chronicles is a lot of them are often told from the perspective of the character being older and telling the story of what happened 20 years ago, which gives you the ability to very easily headcanon things as they're being an unreliable narrator. They're misremembering, they're leaving out details. But this one is told very much in real time, and you just can't do that. So all of those little pieces, such as the various elements of the plot that fall apart if you look at them or even breathe on them, to <laughs> Joe's characterization not being quite right for where this is meant to be set in the context of the show, it just doesn't work, I think, because of that way they're telling the story. Yeah, it might have been better suited as just a straight-up Third Doctor adventure rather than a companion mm -hmm. chronicle, especially because their priority is very clearly not Joe. It's the Scorchies, which is fine. I just wish they put them in a different range and didn't have a companion as strong as Season 10 Joe forced to basically just sit around. She doesn't really do anything, nor is she able to rescue herself. 
And the alternative would be just to rewrite the song and make it season eight, Joe. That would be very easy to do and solve that entire problem. But do we want to see more season eight, Joe? <laughs> oh, <laughs> see, I just want them to write Joe well, and it makes me really sad to see her forced to play the damsel in distress role and not even be given the courtesy oh. of getting to save herself. Yeah, because you can't have her be season eight because she's damsel in distress. You can't have it be season nine, Joe, because she just got sidelined. So the only option is season ten. That's fair. Well, on that rather depressing note, I think we've pretty much exhausted the discussion points. Do we want to go ahead and rate this? Aren't we all going to wrap it all up with a finale where we all sing one of the Scorchy songs together? (laughs) Can we just get Julie to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, singing is not my forte. We'll add the song as a (laughs) post-credit. Wait, did anyone listen to the behind the scenes where they interview the songwriters? Yes. Or am I the only one? Okay, good. I listen to that because Julie has previously told me off for not listening to the interviews. Well, because he'll mention something and I was like, actually, if you listen to the interview, this is what it was. And he's like, oh, Um, it always came up in the conversation. Can we appreciate how the songs sound when it's just one voice and a piano? Oh, they sound awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like super British like voice. Oh, man, it was wonderful. I was just like, yep. This is wonderful. It's like it, it kind of reminded me of like you see those old tunes like when they're in a saloon, there's mm. someone playing a piano, oh. singing some songs. That's kind of what it reminded me of, except instead of a cowboy voice, it was a British voice. <laughs> so the ballad of the Last Chance Saloon, basically. Yes. Oh, yes. No. Yes. no. Yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I didn't need to be reminded of that song. It's amazing. I rewrote it. It's fine. <laughs> I'm so glad that someone agrees with me on that. To be fair, Riley, I think Don and I more or less agreed with you on that one. Yeah. It was Julie who really li- I liked other elements of the gunfighters, but the ballads of the Last Chance Saloon. Yeah. It didn't bother me. It was what it was. I liked the idea of what they were doing, but we've recorded that episode already. All right. So let's go with our big finish newbie first, Don. Oh, I was not expecting that, you son of a... Okay. If we ignore <laughs> a lot of plot elements that will just fall apart and it's even worse now that we're knowing we talk about it it doesn't quite hold up but it's fun it's a lot of fun you have these great songs you have katie manning doing all these awesome voices including her impressions of the doctor and the brig which i really liked and while she wasn't as strong of a character here i can almost mentally fill in what led up to this point of her getting there and i could think we could probably give her some big hero moments in there It didn't outstay its welcome, unlike a lot of the TV show does sometimes. Two, it's quick. I'm going to give it seven evil puppets out of ten. All right. Naomi, do you want to go next? Sure. I feel like I'm a bit of a downer on this one. It's not my favorite. It definitely set out to achieve a certain tone and a certain vibe and a certain story type. And I think it succeeded. And I can certainly admire it for just the sheer audacity of trying to do a story like this. But on the other hand, I get really frustrated with the way Joe is written. I really hate that she's forced to play the damsel in distress and doesn't get anything to do, especially since this is a companion chronicle that's meant to showcase her. The plot is paper thin. Paper thin might even be generous in terms of the plot. And while I love the songs, <laughs> they did go on a bit long to the point where it felt like maybe they're trying to paper over the fact that they don't have enough story to even fill two parts. 
So on that note, I will give this five ballroom dancing Bentons out of ten. <laughs> Riley, let's go with you next. Big finish really did make a thing. <laughs> I loved this. I'm not kidding. I listened to this on Sunday and I listened to it again today. <laughs> This is the perfect story for Big Finish because the medium is perfect for experimentation. This is a story that would never get the budget to be a televised episode as much as I would love that. And this is fun, silly, playful, terrifying, all rolled into one. I only wish it was longer and incorporated more of our TARDIS crew. For example, I want to see, or excuse me, hear Benton's reaction to seeing a Scorchy in person for the first time. <laughs> only criticism is that it was way too silly. And what I mean by that is that it felt like they were too scared to treat this with even one ounce of seriousness which is a shame because I think it had potential if it was tamped down just a tad and made more horror-focused. God, it was so much fun and just so original. I give this eight and a half reversed reverse polarities out of ten. Wow. <laughs> That's okay. Balances. <laughs> <laughs> so Don thought it was just right in length. Riley felt like it was too short. Cool. Julie, you're up next. Say it's too long. Say it's too long. Say it's too long. <laughs> I was going to say it's too long. <laughs> Edit that in. I think I am going to lean a little bit more towards Riley on this one. I loved it. <laughs> it was fun. It was silly. The songs were catchy. And even though, yes, the plot might be paper thin and all of that, it kept my interest for the entire length of the time. I could overlook some of the characterization elements because that's not what was happening in the story. That's not, I mean, yes, it's Companion Chronicle, but the story itself is centered about how ridiculous can we make this and how much can we draw upon all these other kids shows and, and everything. So I thought they nailed what they were trying to do. So I'm going to give it eight magic mice out of 10. Wow. All right. And that leaves me and I'm not sure there's a huge amount I can add. This is very silly. I was entertained for both parts, which isn't necessarily true with every single companion chronicle. It depends who's in it. Sometimes they can be very dry. This one was anything but. I enjoyed what both Katie Manning and Melvin Hayes brought to it. I enjoyed the songs. I enjoyed all the references to those kids' TV shows that I grew up on reruns of in the 1990s. But it's not perfect. We've mentioned several times the plot is wafer thin. The songs do go on a little long. But as I take a step back and think, do the good parts weigh out the bad? Yeah, I think they do. And for me, this one's a solid 7 out of 10 references to terrible sci-fi shows. <laughs> <laughs> Does Doctor Who count as one of them? <laughs> okay, so with that, we have reached the end of our episode. Once again, I'd like to thank Naomi for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Please, once again, remind anyone how they can find you in case they weren't listening at the beginning of the show. You can find me on Instagram at thehoovian underscore gal. And I post a whole wide range of content. There should be something for everyone, depending on what era of the show you like or what content you like in your fandom. And we are big fans of your work. So listeners, please go check her out. The memes are wonderful. Yes. <laughs> and we're definitely looking forward to seeing what content you put out there in the future. Maybe more John Wiles memes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the true villain of the show. I can't wait for Russell T. Davies <laughs> to bring him back. <laughs> 
We at Watchers in the Fourth Dimension will be back next time with a regular episode when we will be bringing you our Season 10 retrospective. But for now, as always, thank you so much for listening and have a good one. have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Naomi Stevenson, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This bonus episode, Kinder Horror, was recorded on Thursday the 31st of March 2022. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a rating or review on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, it's always worth listening through to the very end of the end credits. There might be a little Easter egg there. making a thing it's got lights that flash and go bing what a lovely thing to sing about joe making a thing joe is making a thing press a button to eat like a king what a lovely thing to sing about joe making a thing because charles play to make a souffle all he need is a little time Make it, bake it, chocolate shake it, it'll make it really sublime. Here's an apple, half a trifle, cooking up a jelly surprise. Because Joe is making a thing. Joe is making a thing. Can you watch it fizzle and sing? What a lovely thing to sing about Joe making a thing. So on a Monday, you make a plum and it lasts for nearly a week. A cheesy omelette can make you forget if you're feeling less than magnifique. I can do it, can't blue it. It's not much of a colony trap, because Joe is making a thing. Joe is making a thing. It's got lights that flash and go big. What a lovely thing to sing about. What a lovely thing to spring about. What a lovely howling fling about.